Hello, Michael. So what will you have to drink? I think just a glass of Barbera. We have an open bottle. I'll keep making progress on that. Okay, sounds good. This is Where is the Love? I'm Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And this is a late night. This is quiet storm uh, <laughs> time recording. How did I know immediately after you said late night that you are going to say quiet storm? Because we've known each other a long time. I am, uh, uh, appreciate you getting me this bottle of Barbera. You're um, welcome. You are cut off for the night because you've been drinking gin and tonic with Catherine all night. Yeah, and Memphis. Yeah, and Memphis. And, uh, and so, so yeah, uh, so we're recording a bit, a bit later after final four and that Duke UNC game was unbelievable and a heartbreaker for, for Duke fans. Uh, and so our condolences, uh, to Duke fans and, uh, just to cover all of our bases, congratulations to UNC fans. Uh, Hey, Melissa. Wait, did they win? Is that yeah, the whole yeah, enchilada? No, no, no. Okay. Final, so UNC will face Kansas on Monday. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this was Coach K's last game. Okay. Uh, coaching. Yeah. Coach K. Coach uh, K of Duke. The people who've lost. Okay, yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. This means absolutely nothing to me, yeah. folks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it means a lot to a lot of people. Yes. No, I'm aware of that. I'm okay. just letting people know that I've I, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, so we uh, we have quite a bit we want to uh, cover on the episode today. Uh, Eval Levin uh, had a op-ed in the New York Times uh, that uh, I thought was. Uh, great. It's also you know something I argue quite a bit. The headline is "Why do our politicians keep pursuing a losing strategy?" Um, and we'll we'll dig into that. But first, you know, Melissa and I thought we have a little little bit of space. It's, obviously, there there is a lot going on in the news, but there there wasn't really anything that jumped out that we wanted to. Uh, dig into and so we thought we'd just share a bit about uh, our story how we met <laughs> maybe how we got engaged yeah yeah we'll see um, where we get to yeah we'll see where we get to uh but melissa i've known you a long time <laughs> you have you have known me a long time since i was 12 yes and uh and so yeah so we went to uh middle school together so you were a year behind me you're yep. younger than me yeah. uh and we have middle school at benjamin franklin middle school in tonawanda new york benjamin franklin uh middle school and why why don't you sort of kick it off sort of when did you well so what's funny about this <laughs> is that i actually met your mom before yes so you're you're uh, mother for a time was a uh, cafeteria was in the cafeteria right yep yep she was a monitor lunch and monitor she was a lunch monitor uh, at school and would have to try and keep me from not moving from <laughs> table to table 
And, you should hear my uh, mom talking about this. She's been trying to wrangle me ever since. <laughs> uh, and uh, but so so had that experience. We probably crossed paths in middle school. Yeah, we did. But it was really in high school that we got to know each other. Yep. Uh, I was. Uh, we were both in show choir. Yes. And uh, uh, so. Probably my sophomore year. Yeah. Uh, you got in your freshman year, right? Or no, did you I, not get in until sophomore year? I didn't get in until sophomore year. So we weren't in show choir together until. Yeah. Uh, but you did. Did you do the shows your freshman year? Um, I did do good news. Yes. Okay. Okay. So we so we had some theater experience and got to know each other a bit, sort of at sophomore my sophomore year, her freshman year. But then we were in a pretty intensive show choir starting my junior year, your sophomore year That's together. Correct. And yeah, why don't you take it from here? <laughs> yes, you love when I tell the story of how I we do met love and how when you tell how we how we got together cuz it's uh it's a fun complicated story every time we tell other people this story, they're always cracking up. Um yes. So it was show choir that brought us together. <laughs> um yeah, we were theater kids everybody. Uh and it was October, it wasn't quite October 31st, but we were at a Halloween party where most of the people from this choir were gathered at. It was on some, some late October night. Um, and, you know, I'm walking around the party and I joined this little group of people and I cannot tell you who else was in this group of people talking, but I know that Michael was because we joked around for a little bit um, and... Uh, I thought to myself, wow, this guy is so mature and so intelligent. I really like him. And I went home and told my mom that And night. we talked in the kitchen, right? I, I remember... So I remember by the bonfire, really connecting. Out, outside? Yeah, outside by the bonfire. Okay. Yeah, because we were talking about... Um, What's that movie that was, I believe, was remade? Uh, it was a Japanese movie. It was a horror movie. Grudge. The Grudge. The Grudge. I made a joke about The Grudge, and you told me, wow, that was a really good callback, Melissa, because there was something said about The Grudge earlier, and then I brought it back via a joke. And you said, that's such a great callback. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't even know what a callback is, but apparently I'm good at them. I was very into stand-up comedy, and so I knew what a, uh, a callback was, was able to use that information to <laughs> ensnare you yeah. yes and so i went home and told my mom that night that um i met this boy and i really like him um and she remembers this particular conversation because she saw that i was completely and utterly enamored already and so you know that was october of 2004 um and then a few months later um may 2nd 2005 michael and i started dating after becoming friends and talking quite a bit. And I was completely into him. It was love it. It was conversation at for uh, love for at first sight, but based on conversation. Um, so we started dating and I'm just super into him and he's just chill. The whole, the whole relationship, you know, he's, I, I can't quite read him. Michael, especially in their early on dating relationship, you were such an enigma to me. You were so closed off with like exactly what you're feeling. And so I was constantly left guessing folks. I was constantly trying to read Michael's 
uh, AIM away messages thinking, is he in a good mood? He's in a bad mood. Is this AIM a message about me? Um, so anyways, <laughs> in, uh, in July, right in very, very, right at the beginning of July, Michael goes off to New York State, Boys State. Um, if you don't know... Went bo- to Boys State. Uh, it's American Legion run program. Y'all may have seen the, I think it was an Apple doc. Uh, yeah, a documentary was I, made. It was a, a documentary uh, made uh, on Boys State. It's a very um, good doc. Yeah. And uh, I was... Uh, uh, so I basically was off the grid for a week, by the way. The first speaker uh, for Boys State was Elliot Spitzer. So we, you know, really uh, uh, <laughs> raising the high character folks at Boys State. They really inspired the next generation. Uh, but so I was away at Boys State, and um, I'll continue on. Okay, okay, you <laughs> you pick it up. Yeah. And we have cell phones, you know, we're able to text and Michael doesn't text me the entire week. This is like seven whole days without any communication. And Michael had told me at the beginning, Melissa, I'm really going to be unavailable. I'm really need to focus on this. I'm not really going to be able to talk. Maybe we will, but probably not. And so I wasn't too alarmed by this, but I missed him. And then, um, basically right as Michael was returning, um, Michael, uh, found out that his grandfather died. And Michael's, Michael's papa is Michael's most important figure in his life growing up. Just, I mean, Michael, you could describe exactly what he means to you, but he's very, very important to Michael. And so um, I see Michael next at the wake for his grandfather at a funeral home. And I come in and uh, Michael, you know, is very stern when he sees me, but why wouldn't he be? He's incredibly sad and very much in the grieving process already. And he pulls me um, away from everybody and just outside. And he basically tells me <laughs> that he cannot be dating me at this time because he has too much to focus on. Um, his grandfather's death has really rocked him and he needs to focus on his studies and he's going to be going away to college and he just can't make this worth. He just can't. He just can't see a. Fu- he he cannot see a future for us. Uh, and so, I take this just in total surprise. We're at the wake. His all of his his mom, his Italian aunts are all inside. And so I walk back inside and I don't talk to anybody else because I text my mom right away saying, please come get me immediately. And luckily, my mom had just been driving around because she figured I wouldn't be there for too long. So she stayed around because we were a good like 30 minutes from my house and so she got there within a couple minutes thank god um because i walked out to that car still i walked through that entire funeral parlor not with a stone face (laughs) trying not to cry so that i wouldn't be calling attention to myself because it was not about me and i get to the car and i just burst into like racking sobs and my mom my more mom is like what is our oh yes it's very sad oh my gosh i'm so sorry and i'm like he broke up with me (laughs) my mom is like what (laughs) and I mean, Michael could tell the story about coming back inside and all of the the Italian women in his family swarming him. Yeah, I mean, right. So I I shouldn't be standing here today. <laughs> you should not, uh, Michael. Having chosen a funeral parlor, uh, it 
to, 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 to break, break up, up with, with your Melissa. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, so I have this horde of Italian aunts who are watching all of this take place outside the funeral parlor, you know, through the window because we were right by the door and I come back in and <laughs> they just swarm. You know, what did you do to that poor girl? But I mean, to tell you the truth, I, um, I was, uh, I was a teenage boy. I, I I didn't know what to do with a girlfriend in the first place. And then <laughs> when my grandfather uh, passed, it was um, it was such like an unmooring thing uh, that I just felt, you know, I'm not being a good boyfriend to this girl, uh, uh, anyways. And now I have like no relational bandwidth, and so I just said, you know, I was, I'm, I'm going to break up with her the next time I see her. Well, the next time I saw her was at a funeral parlor. But you came by. Mm-hmm. So I do this, right? Not a, not a, not a good move. Not a considerate uh, move, though there were extenuating circumstances. But Melissa comes by, and honest, even in the moment, I... I I filed it in the back of my mind that she she was the kind of person who would do this. But she came to drop off uh, a card, uh, like a condolence card, uh, at my house. Uh, I think it was the day of the funeral. The day of it was the, the day after. The day after the funeral. Because yeah. um, I attended the funeral. I Yes, I did still go and attend the funeral, by yeah, the way. Yeah, so she attended the funeral. I saw her there. I thought... Well, that's interesting. And then she dropped off this card. I didn't come, but she gave it to my uh, mother. And so I filed that back. So, right, so we're, we get through the summer. Um, we have a school play my senior year, her junior year. And uh, it's Christmas Carol. And what do you know? Uh, <laughs> I get cast as Scrooge. And Melissa gets cast as Ghost of Christmas Past. And so for like the next three, four months, we're spending, obviously we're, we have classes, we got show choir during the day, and then we have like rehearsal every, every night, basically for three, four months. And so we're starting to get reacquainted and, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, uh, you know, I basically I'm an old man who's got to hold the hand of the Ghost of Christmas Past uh, on stage for the whole first act, and so we're holding the hands on on stage. <laughs> so, so let me take over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> again, Michael's got the whole like innocent seventeen year old boy thing going on. Well, behind <laughs> the scenes in my world, <laughs> I so going back to that card that I handed him um, the day after the funeral. I went to a Christian bookstore for the very first time in my life because I was like, I want a religious card to give to Michael wow. because we had actually first connected after that Halloween party or the fact that I was starting to attend the chapel um, in Buffalo, which is a big church, and he was starting to attend the chapel, and that was one of the ways that we bonded. And one of the ways that we further bonded, becoming friends and then dating, was that we were both burgundying Christians. Um and so I wanted to get him something because I just, I felt like a movement <laughs> deep in the spirit that I shouldn't just let him grieve alone. And so I went to this 
Christian bookstore for the very first time in my life, very overwhelmed. Um, and I, I spent like two, my mom, again, such a trooper, spent, took me there because just to support me. Um, spent like two and a half hours there with me as I picked the perfect card. Like I've never taken that long to pick a card in my life, even ever again, even. Um, and I wrote him this long letter because I knew that Michael responded well to writing. And like this is a theme throughout oh, our relationship that Michael is a writer and he responds to that. And I am not. I'm the opposite. If I didn't have to write more than a sentence for the rest of my life, I'd be very happy. <laughs> and so I wrote to him my very first letter to him. I I'd never written to him before, and I wrote it hand hand wrote it in this card, um, and you know handed it to his mom because he refused to come to the door to answer the door. Even and, and Michael's mom had to say, "Oh yeah, he's not home." When he was in fact home. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, fast forward. We're at this play now. Basically, after a couple weeks after, you know, his grandfather died and he had broken up with me, I began Operation Get Michael Back. Because <laughs> I thought, no, 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 this is the guy for me. Like a less creepy Robin Thicke, basically. <laughs> I'm probably going to sound slightly unhinged for the rest of this, for the rest of this story. Just beware. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we get to this play. And at that point... Um, I knew a couple of girlfriends who were starting to crush on Michael, and I thought, mm, 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 One of them mm. was writing me letters, which must have sent up some oh, red flags. Oh, it sent up just, like, DEFCON. Just <laughs> everything was alerted. Um, and so the, the one person was actually a really, really, really good friend of mine, and I said to her, I said, it's girl code, man. You can't just go and date him. And she was like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so anyways... We get through this play, and it was so much fun acting beside him because I got to be close to him. I got to hold his hand so much, and I get so many butterflies every time I'd hold your hand. Um, and then, you know, we start going through the rest of the year, and then there is this this other this other girl um, who I knew was crushing on the one that was writing letters. It was a burgundy relationship. Well, my best friend, Brian, also was crushing on this girl. So I basically said, hey, Brian, have you ever thought about dating this person? And he, and he was like, yes. And he's like, yeah, because, you know, like, I really like her. I'm really into her. And they started dating because she was also into him. So Unbelievable. That meant that she was also removed from the game. And then we get into... It's like Survivor over here. And at this, this point, just... at, while all this is happening and Brian is starting to date this other girl, um, we're in the spring musical, um, Bye Bye Birdie, and Michael has a lead. Um, and... Ah, we get through that, you know, we're again together at night, but you know, I didn't have any part. I was just in the ensemble. I think I had some like bit part, like I think I was named Margie. You did have a cute green and white polka dot dress though. My mom sewed my dress from like a McCall's, like from Joanne's thing and it turned out so cute. I love that dress. Um, And so we get to, and you know, Michael and I are talking more and more and more and I feel like I'm getting some vibes from him that he might be open to a relationship again. And so we get to the cast party for the musical, which uh, SNL's Crucible cast party skit is incredibly accurate to what goes on at cast parties. It's just embarrassingly just very high school. Yes, Um, very high school. A lot goes down at those parties. Everyone's exhaling after... (laughs) three, four months of rehearsal and uh-huh. feels like they're on top of the world. And and yeah, that's when a lot of stuff happens. Yes, and so Michael and I slow danced at the cast party to hey Howie, Howie Days Collide. So I, I still love that song because of that. And I drive him home that night. 
um, because my mom let me ha- my mom and dad had let me have the car, and so it was just, I was just driving Michael home, and we I park in his driveway, and <laughs> I turn to him, and he's trying to say goodbye to me, and I just kiss him. Accosted. <laughs> I mean, just straight out, flat out, a cost. I was getting vibes from him that he was into it, and he kissed me back immediately. So please, let's not. (laughs) But you were still, the way you tell it, that you were very dazed and caught off guard still, even though you kissed me back. But here I am. I kiss him. We, what, make out for like a couple minutes, two or three minutes. I mean, I don't know if people need that level of detail. (laughs) Um, And then you go inside the house, and I sit there just like squealing, thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to work again. I'm finally back with him. And not just like, oh, like, oh, I've, you know, I've done it or whatever. But, I, I, again, I was already, I was in love with Michael from the very from the very second I actually had a conversation with him. And I just knew that he, he was the one. He was mine. Um, and so we get back to, that was a Saturday night. We get to school on Monday. And on Instant Messenger, in the li- I was in the library, Michael is messaging me saying, yeah, that was kind of a mistake. This really can't work. And then I convince him, we need to talk about this. Can I meet you after school? It was like, I mean, to be clear, it was like a, you can't, <laughs> you can't just kiss me. And that, but it's like, no, I was accosted. Yeah, you can't put that on me. Okay, continue, continue. So Michael lives like a couple of blocks um, from our high school. Um, we went to Kenmore East High School in Tonawanda. Wow, um, you are just give you, you want to give out my social? <laughs> my goodness. Okay, continue. You're the one who wanted to tell the story about how we met. I know you don't together. need to give. Uh, 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 you want to go over my report card? I want to paint the picture. Yeah, you're, for pa- them. you're painting it already. <laughs> <laughs> so I go over to Michael's house and we proceed to sit on his gold and cream floral couch for two hours. Well, Michael gives me every single reason why we shouldn't be together, and I give him every single rebuttal known to man. And at the very end, he agrees that we can date. And this is, again, this is May 2nd, exactly one year from when we first started dating, where he agrees, and he's going off to George Washington University that um, at the end of August, so in three months' time. And so he agreed, even though he was going off to college, you know, 350 miles away. Um, but that's also how good I am at convincing him. <laughs> very lawyerly. I mean, very lawyerly. And uh, I, you know, I just, I just thought, you know, I don't have a good, good reason to give give her for why we can't date, or at least I, I thought I had, I thought I had several good reasons, but was quickly shown that they were not good at all. And so my thought was, well, I, I think it'll just kind of become obvious. When I'm away, when she's going through her senior year of high school, that this is uh, not going to work. And if it does work, great. But you know, she she's she was pressing. You know, she she's asking for it. So so I don't um, feel bad about the fact that I'm going away, going away to college. So like, let's just okay. We'll like try this out. And um. And and, uh, and so so yes, yeah, so I went away to college. And uh, I wonder if we should stop there and maybe pick up the story yeah. in a future episode. I mean, I, I think, spoiler, we didn't break up ever again. Yep. Uh, and so we've been dating since, uh, well, so this is the debate. <laughs> so uh, I mark 
us, uh, our relationship is starting in May of 2006. And I mark it as May 2005. That's right. And so our years, there, there, there's some contestation there. But, um, uh, uh, but uh, whether you mark it from 2005 or 2006, uh, we've been together uh, ever since. And it's been an incredible, incredible journey. Yeah. And we've been through. Uh, I still love you just as much as I did. Oh, I love you even at more. That I mean, obviously. Party. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I mean... love you much more than a sixteen-year-old boy who would dump you at a funeral parlor, <laughs> not to sweep you off your feet or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I always get to say. I loved you first. Yeah. I always win all that, all those fights. Well, so <laughs> there is your answer to uh, where is the love when we get back. We'll uh, and I just say we'll pick up this story. Uh, uh, I do want to talk about our engagement. Want to talk about what it was like dating, uh, you know, while we made our way through college yeah. and our early careers. Um, but we'll cover that in a future episode. But we'll always be able to refer back to this one for uh, for the origin story. Uh, when we get back, we'll talk about Yuval Levin's uh, op-ed in the New York Times. This is where is the love. This is Where is the Love? And Melissa, we saw this op-ed and thought it would be worth bringing to folks' attention in the top five uh, this week. This is uh, op-ed in the New York Times from uh, Yuval Levin. Yuval's at uh, the American Enterprise Institute, author of uh, several uh, popular books, including A Time to Build, which is just um, which is a really uh, wonderful book that I'd recommend to folks. He's also the editor of National Affairs, which is mm-hmm. a, uh, a publication that we uh, get quite a bit out of. But Yuval writes this op-ed again, why do our politicians keep pursuing a losing strategy? Uh, and I'll just read the opening. In the spring of a new president's second year in office, political junkies know all too well what to expect from the midterm elections. A president of whatever party elected largely thanks to public distaste for his opponent, came in with his party in in control of Congress and intent on not wasting an opportunity for transformative policy change. For all his talk of building new coalitions, he focused on the priorities of his party's core activists, and by now it's pretty clear that most voters don't love what they see. The only way his party will avoid losing at least one House of Congress is if the other party somehow makes itself even more obnoxious. The question for November is whom the public will like less. Uh, And Yuval goes on to explain that, in his view, this has been the pattern of our politics for three decades now. And it's uh, become uh, predictable. And the parties are locked in to this, uh, this practice or malpractice of... Instead of seeking to build the broadest possible coalitions, uh, actually taking actions that that limit uh, the 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 voters that they can uh, appeal to, I, I did think Melissa one of the um, one of the interesting things that uh, Yuval zeroes in on here is the fact that our close elections 
uh, actually are an impediment to uh, healthier political parties because while both political parties are uh, minorities, no, there's no political party has a, a majority American support. And in fact, there are more independents than there are members of either party. That being said, uh, while both political parties are actually minorities, Levin argues that they act as though they're, they're uh, majority parties, and that they're always on the precipice of an electoral victory. And the fact that elections are so close actually, you know, lends itself to that notion. And I think that's, I think that's, that's really true. And so, you know, if you're always on the verge of taking back Congress, then it really uh, empowers the leaders to say, look, uh, as long as we hold together, as long as there isn't, uh, as long as there aren't folks that sort of break the company line, uh, then uh, th then we'll be fine. You know, we don't need to change anything. That That is what Mitch McConnell did in the wake of Barack Obama's victories in, in 2008 and Democrats' victories. He said, look, uh, yes, Democrats won 59 uh, seats uh, in, in the Senate, uh, but let's not react to this by necessarily changing uh, 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 much of our platform or uh, let's just hold together, make life as difficult uh, and, and, and uh, it's difficult for the party in power. Most importantly, blame the party in power for everything that sort of the, uh, the, the public is unhappy with. And as long as we stay cohesive, um, we'll, we'll, we'll win back uh, election. Um, I guess the last thing I'd say about this article is uh, Yuval argues that the answer is not so much um, or, or his proposed solution is not so much for uh, uh, a, a centrism, uh, but that we, that our political parties uh, ask different kinds of, uh, different kinds of questions. Uh, so he writes here, it requires not so much offering different answers to the questions that have long shaped our political divisions, but taking up some new questions better rooted in the public's contemporary concerns about new sources of financial insecurity and high living costs, threats to parenthood and childhood, dangers of concentrated corporate power, sources of cultural dislocation, perils of internet governance, and other challenges that scramble familiar partisan dogmas. Such questions can be answered in right-leaning or left-leaning ways, but they first need to be asked. Then, so Melissa, uh, you know, I think you think you've all. I think this is a helpful contribution to uh, the ongoing uh, conversation about the toxicity of our politics, about why our politics doesn't seem to be functioning uh, as well as it could or should. Um, what What did you come away with? <clears throat> Well, one of the very first things, if you look at the, you read the, the top two graphs of the article, and um, they're not so much like exactly what Yuval thinks is happening. He's, what he's trying to describe is the pattern, um, what you should be expecting from the midterms after the president of whatever party is elected. And one of the things that it says here is that what happens in terms of what the voters think or how they feel and then why the midterms go the way that they go, which is usually against the president's party, is that, um, you know, uh, 
end quote, um, a president elected largely thanks to public distaste for his opponent came in with his party in control of Congress and intent on not wasting an opportunity for transforming policy change, but for all the talk of building new coalitions, he focused on the priorities of his party's core activists. And by now it's pretty clear that most voters don't love what they see. This is just so funny to me in a time of pernicious polarization that you read that. And yes, that's exactly what's happening, but it, it's mainly almost like um, an inception or just like a, a narrative, just a, narrative-driven politics because actually, and I, I'm i taking this from a tweet that Bill Schur, um, one of my favorite um, writers out there for Washington Monthly, tweeted out on March 10th saying, here's a list of bipartisan success lists for, for President Biden. And he lists off the Omnibus slash Ukraine Aid slash um, Violence Against Women Act, postal reform, infrastructure, Uyghur forced labor, hate crimes, veterans benefits, Havana syndrome, debt limit, Medicare cut suspension, Juneteenth. These are all the, bi, not just bills that have been passed, bipartisan bills. And so you look at that list. If I think if we were to go meet a bunch of aliens and hand them this list, they would say, oh, things are going pretty well. But the thing is, is that there are narratives going on here that have been, that are tried and true, are historic, especially before, um, you know, uh, this particular midterm that are just being sort of perpetuated and there's this narrative that there's nothing's been done when it's like actually a lot of bipartisanship in a time of pernicious polarization, a lot of that's happening and it's actually pretty incredible and should be lauded, but it's not being lauded whatsoever. Um, so that's just something that I want to point out here as a really interesting dynamic of our politics right now. Um, yeah, yeah, so let me... Yeah, so, sure, jump so, in. Yeah, so I think... So I do think that's, that's true. You, uh, in in the sense that you can you can tell a story uh, about this administration and the last year um, that is one of bipartisan accomplishment, which is one of sort of focusing where uh, Americans can uh, can agree. Uh, I think for much of the first year once he got past the inaugural mm -hmm. for much of the first year that's not the story frankly that i think democrats have been organized enough around absolutely not telling. completely their fault yes and so well so i don't know if it's so right so part of what's happening is you have and these are all sort of you know it's such uh so sort of uh, conventional that they're, they're they're tropes, but just to sort of rehash the, you know, you have a you have a stratified media environment uh, where you have more uh, and a and a more democratized open sort of uh, social discourse where what catches attention is not necessarily what's taking up the most oxygen or, or sort of what's what's uh, the priority of uh, a handful of people in DC mm -hmm. but actually what uh, uh, is is most sort of um, unusual or most sort of uh, uh, is most exciting or entertaining uh, and so you know it is hard to tell a story and keep a cohesive narrative about bipartisan accomplishment um, in, in an environment like this one. I don't think Democrats have tried enough. I think some Democrats don't want that to be the story. And 
the White House at times has not clearly indicated uh, whether they want it to be the story, which has been a problem. Now, you know, I think uh, we've talked about the infrastructure bill here before. They were I think, much delayed in trumpeting the infrastructure bill. They came to it late that they almost had to, in my view, they almost had to wait until Build Back Better was sort of withering on the vine to feel like they could trumpet the infrastructure bill. Um, and and I thought I thought that was that was unfortunate. But yeah, I mean I, I agree with you. There there's a story you could tell. I will say one of the things that that can happen is people always forget. You know they look at polls of the party in power mm-hmm. and especially the president in power and go, oh you know wow um, you know uh, uh, that you know the negative uh, approval uh, rating is is. Um, it, it doesn't look good. I think the thing to remember is they're not in campaign mode yet. Mm-hmm. And so they haven't really marshaled the resources of the the presidency uh, to, to tell a cohesive narrative in campaign mode. And so it'll be interesting to see as this year continues to um, unfold what kind of message Biden sends. And then just the last one I'll make here is uh, I, I do think that Biden will would be in a better position to, to tell uh, a bipartisan sort of narrative uh, if uh, he had at least, if he had Republicans in control of the House or the Senate. I think it's very hard to. Uh, I think I think it has not been natural for him to to have to to have no Republicans in power to sort of play off of and to be basically in charge of navigating intra Democratic sort of squabbles in Congress, particularly when you look at the House. And I'm interested to see. If Republicans take back the House, the Senate, or both, what kind of political reset that offers, uh, you know, for for the president? Yeah, and then um, that's very helpful. And then the other, the thesis at the end, which you you went over a bit, where um, he doesn't use these words, but it seems like these might be the appropriate words. Um, that this idea that whichever party genuinely tries, so not just from a superficial sense of just grabbing some voters for for a certain day, getting their vote, and then dropping them, but genuinely trying to be a big tent party. He doesn't use big tent, but that's what I would call it, a big tent party, that if you try to be a big tent party, ask different questions, then you'll be able to cut through this record high polarization, polarization that uh, that we've been in for far longer than we've ever been in before at a rate, at a, at a height that is just, um, that we've never been at before. I'm just a bit skeptical. And again, this is a New York Times op-ed, 800 words. We know you've all has much more to give than yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I'm very skeptical that this is this is the response to um, again the term that I'm using, pernicious polarization. You can go back to one of our previous episodes where we go over this um, this term. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think uh, <laughs> I think. A key thing to remember here, 
remember Yuval is an institution guy. We wrote a book mm-hmm. called A Time to Build. So I think what he would probably add to sort of his um, his urging the asking of new questions is the building of new institutions that can support sort of uh, a changing paradigm in our politics, which is to say, like one of the principal one of one of the principal challenges here is that the questions that are being asked now have a lot to do with the sort of uh, with with the landscape with with uh, sort of the alignment of uh, the coalitions of our political parties. So you really need an injection of new players, institutions with new kinds of agendas that can provide the and change the kind of incentive structure that makes it not possible for new questions to be asked, because new questions can be asked, but but will make it possible for those kinds of questions to be sustained. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we talked in the last episode about uh, some new institutions, uh, and uh, I, I do think that we're in a we're in a period where there's a lot of energy around building new things, and that's what's going to be, I think, necessary uh, for, uh, for for changing the kind of di- the kind of dynamic that that you've all talks about in the piece. Sure, um, and I'm completely on board with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but what do you do I, for for people like you've all? Uh, a question that I have for you and others who really favor um, creating long-lasting change and paradigm shifts through institutions and not through individuals. Millennials and Gen Z don't like institutions and don't really trust them. So what do you do when a growing cohort of voters feel this way? And by by just pure logic, and obviously we'll have to wait and see, but Gen Alpha coming afterwards, if these two generations are feeling this, won't it be even less trust. I mean, maybe the pendulum will swing enough. The Gen Alpha will be the generation that comes back to institutions. But by that time, still, Gen Z and millennials will be like the major uh, cohorts of voters. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the highest percentage of voters. So, right. So, uh, a few things. Um, I think that a lot of the energy in drive of uh, and, and sort of opinions of millennials and Gen Z uh, will be uh, wasted or neutered if they are not channeled through institutions. Uh, agreed. And so, you know, one possible sort of future is one in which institutions uh, play an even bigger role because... Uh, uh, such, um, uh, or or I should say, institutions that actually uh, uh, represent fewer and fewer people mm-hmm. uh, have increased influence because uh, because you just have a whole bunch of folks that are just sort of checking out. Mm-hmm. Now it's important when talk about institutions. You know, it, it's not just. Um, it's not just, uh, you know, like the Rotary Club. You know, I think I think that there's an opportunity to build sort of 21st century uh, institutions that can can organize uh, uh, people and and represent people and 
provide uh, some uh, stewardship of uh, inputs over the long haul. Uh, so I'm not I'm not ready to to give up uh, give up on institutions, nor am I ready to give up on millennials and Gen Z folks uh, contributing to and building their own institutions for. Uh, for for this period, I think they'll look different. They'll probably look a little less um, uh, a little less hierarchical. I was about to say they'll um, look less hierarchical. They'll look, for sure. a, they'll look they'll look flatter. Although I'm interested to see, I I think that there there are going to be some interesting lessons learned about uh, about in that specific area over over the next five ten years. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if uh, sort of thinking evolves there. But but yeah, so I I think it's a it's a it's a, it's a great point. Um, I just don't see what the what what the pathway is uh, forward other than what we have now, which is a coalition based politics where the coalitions uh, the representatives of these coalitions are often pretty far removed from those they're claiming to represent. And I kind of think like that, I hope that that kind of system can only succeed, can only hold up for so long. And in fact, I think what we're seeing now is it is it breaking down. The question is just whether our political parties are going to be able to change and accommodate themselves and and actually match the moment and match the people. And of course, Levin's op-ed is describing all of the ways in which they're not and have been resistant to, to doing that over, in his view, the last 30, 30 years or so. That's really helpful. Thank you for answering. Um, I have a lot more to say here, but I think we'll end it here. But I mean, you've all, we're getting into, into institutions here, but a lot of this just comes down to how do you actually break through our current levels of polarization, which is a question that you and I have been asking again and again and again. And we think it'll probably take a, uh, probably even beyond a multi-pronged strategy, a uh, just uh, many different avenues and outlets. Because um, I think about tech here, I think about social media, I think oh, about disinformation yeah. and misinformation here. Obviously, this doesn't even bring in ideology, the ideological ends of, pol- of our current polarization. Yeah. Um, but that is for another time. Yeah, no, I think... Uh, I would encourage folks to read that bed. Let us know what what you think, uh, uh, what what your experience and 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 uh, how how you view things might match up with uh, the op-ed. And obviously, this is uh, an ongoing conversation. Uh, Melissa, it was it was good as always uh, uh, talking with you. Would um, would really urge folks to. Uh, Subscribe, reclaiminghope.substack.com. You can get the podcast, uh, get uh, all the content and analysis we provide throughout the week into your uh, inbox. Um, And uh, we so appreciate those of you who are already subscribers. Uh, Melissa, I enjoyed this episode. Uh, Me too. uh, Yeah, uh, it was a good uh, late night, late night conversation. Quiet storm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that how it's said I can't remember I haven't listened to Quiet Storm in a while Quiet Storm oh yes okay flowing <laughs> I love smoking okay alright folks 
this has been Where is the Love? Uh, talk to you next week. Bye.